Welcome to the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast, where we interview the world's leading CEOs, business executives, entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and authors. Our mission is to learn the strategies and tactics that have helped our guests succeed in business and life and share those lessons with you so that you can become the Bulletproof Entrepreneur. My name is Chia Dogu, and I'm the co-founder and COO of Dogu Media Group. Dogu Media Group is a podcast marketing and new media agency that helps corporations create and amplify their story via high-quality branded audio content that builds a community of highly engaged fans who are their ideal clients for their premium products and services. And now, without further ado, on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome to another exciting episode of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast. My guest on the show today is Dr. Dennis T. Jaffe. Dennis is a San Francisco-based advisor to family-owned businesses. He helps them think about how to preserve their family wealth and go into the next generation in terms of building a family business that can succeed from generation to generation. He's the author of the new book titled Borrowed from Your Grandchildren, The Evolution of the 100-Year Family Enterprise. Dennis is a frequently noted uh, consultant and keynote speaker in the family business and family office space. He writes for magazines like Forbes and many other family related publications. I'm pleased to have him on the show today to tell us a little bit more about his business, his entrepreneurial journey, consulting with uh, family-owned businesses, and of course, his new books and the lesson that can be extracted from that for entrepreneurs like you that are just starting your business or are growing your business to think about how you can optimize your business for the next generation. So with that said, Dennis, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Chia. It's wonderful to be here and to be thinking about these issues. Thank you so much for coming, Dennis. So, Dennis, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. How did you get into this field of um, family-owned businesses and working with families that are dynastic in terms of their wealth and how they view the world and how they do business in the world? Well, it's, it's a funny path, but like most people that are in the field of advising family businesses, we came from a family business. And my parents ran a business that was uh, actually a, a school and so we lived right in the middle of it. So I grew up, you know, watching my parents run a business. And I, I never knew that parents went away to work. I always thought that work was something that, that your parents did together and it was right in your house and everything. And so in my career later, what's interesting is I've always worked out of my house. I'm sitting in my, uh, my office now. My wife works upstairs and it just, kind of happened. We noticed, gee, I'm doing, it's exactly the same as my parents. So these patterns stay with you. I, I didn't go into the family business and um, I went to um, uh, school and uh, got a you know, business degree and um, became a, a professor, which being a teacher is like what my parents did, but different. And uh the way I got interested in family business was when, before I actually, uh, when I was in college, I worked with runaway kids. And this was in the 60s, way back, the 1960s, way back. And uh, kids were running away and they were on the streets and, you know, and, and they say, well, I don't want to live with my parents. We don't agree. We have different values. And I understood that. But then again, you know, what were they going to do? And so I, I tried to get the parents and kids together. And what's funny is it's now 50 years later, 
and I'm still doing the same thing. Conversations between parents and kids about family business, about who's going to run it, about what their values are. And so I guess that took. Now, I went away after I did the family work. That was what I did as a service project in college. That wasn't something that I thought of as a career. And so I went on and I, I, I worked with businesses that were going through uh, major culture change and transition. And so I did that for a long time. And then um, in the 80s, a group of people started talking about family business and, and the fact that most businesses in every country of the world are family businesses. And that mm-hmm. means that it's, and, and indeed in the history of the world, you know, if you grew up in a family, part of what you did was you did what your parents did and you learned skills from your parents. And if they were, you know, carpenters, you were a carpenter because there weren't schools to go to. So f- business was all family business. And it's only in the, in the last 200 years in the industrial age that the idea of, of careers and schools and really, um, you know, came up. So all business was family business. And, and when we look today, most small business, medium business, and, and even when you look at large corporations, they're mostly family businesses. Now, the exception, I think, um, in, in, in today is that, that now it's easier to start a business. So there are what seem to be non-family entrepreneurial businesses. And, and they get a lot of attention. But most people um, that start a business, they get the people around them. So they, they, need, they need help. They get their uh, spouse. Sometimes the spouse has another job, but they do the bookkeeping. And then um, the kids help out. And it's free labor. You know? yeah. So it gives you a competitive advantage. So family businesses grow up. And then when they're successful, it's just natural. Well, of course, you want to turn it over to your kids. That's that's the way it is. And you want to see it continue. So family businesses are, um, and what's interesting to me is that family businesses are businesses and they're, they're to make money, but they're different than other kinds of businesses because the owners are all related to each other. Mm-hmm. And because they're related, they're they're not just interested in making money, but they want to help each other and they have values that they care for. So family businesses, you know, care about uh, values and non-financial things. And they're also, because the family members want to pass it on to their children, they're also um, have a long-term perspective. And that makes them different from, you know, most public corporations makes family businesses are value-based and and long-term and those are what we say we want, you know, companies to, to do generally. We want them to be values-based and we want them to think long-term, not short-term, and care about other people in the environment. And that's family businesses. So the, the research I've been doing in, is um, looking at successful family businesses. And those are family businesses that have been operated for more than three generations. And so they're mostly pretty large and they've diversified and they, they, you know, but, but they, but they still, even in three generations with a lot of family members, they still have a definition of and values as a family. Mm. And, and I wanted to study them so that I could, people could look back at what successful businesses do and apply those things to businesses that were starting up. You're starting a business in the first 
or second generation? And um, how do you begin to set it up so that it becomes a long-term family business? Because most family businesses don't make it past the first generation. Yeah, past the first generation, yes. Now, I'm glad that you brought that up because I looked at your book, I, look, I read some of the stats you had, and looking at it, majority of the companies that are family business that you research, I think it just said in your book, 62% were based in the U.S. and I think 5% in Asia, South America, right. maybe 13% in Europe. And I found that in Africa, it was only 1% of right. companies that were uh, family-owned business that were intergenerational. So why is it that there's such a big disparity between the U.S. and the rest of the world? So let's take, for example, the U.S. Well, and Africa. Yeah, this, not, this, like, has nothing, this has nothing to do with, with the number of businesses because there are just as many family businesses as Africa. This is about me convincing a family to be part of this research and, and to share is difficult. And I started out with U.S. families because those were the ones that I knew and then I got introduced to more global families, and so I'm I'm trying to get more families from Africa, and I'm and I'm meeting them in, in, in Asia. But it's just simply my the families I knew and I could get to. Um, it has nothing to do with the fact that there's more in the U.S. Okay, um, okay, okay. I think I, there's sorry for yeah. misinterpreting that. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I thought there was a disparity in like, oh, there are more here versus there. No, I, I just don't know them. But as I meet them and as I go more and more to other countries, what I find is that on the one hand, there are a lot of different cultures. And you mm-hmm. go to Africa, you go to Asia, you go to the Middle East, and there are many different cultural styles. And, and uh, But what's interesting is a lot of the problems and challenges, no matter what culture you come from, parents and children have trouble communicating. Exactly. Uh, they have different expectations. Um, the kids grow up with a, with a, a wider perspective and they have to, um, you know, they, they don't quite understand the drive of their parents and brothers and sisters fight and they, they argue this happens all over the world. And so I wanted to look at not just the U.S., you know, but really see what family businesses were doing in, in other continents and other places in the world. Okay. So now, as you mentioned that conflict, I've noticed that when the scions of wealthy families take, for example, from the rest of the world, come to study in the States or in Europe or whatever, you know, right. they're coming, they're moving away from their culture, their norms, their ideas and right. their family values. They learn the skill sets they need to take their family businesses into the next century or into right. the next phase of the, the family's growth and development. Yeah. But going back, they've now become different people. It's not so much that they don't want to adapt to their old culture and the old world, but they've now like broadened their mindset and they say, okay, maybe right. some, of, some of the culture that we grew up with, we don't need to. And besides, you know what, I've studied in America, you know, I think things need to be a little bit more relaxed and informal so that that way the employees and the way we're doing business can actually thrive more because when it's more informal, it's friendlier and it's easier to get people to relax. Well, this is, this is where, so this is a, you, you bring up a very interesting point. <laughs> Let me kind of go into it because, because first of all, in, in the past, when your father was a carpenter and you had to learn carpentry, you didn't have, you weren't exposed to different ideas about carpentry. You weren't exposed to different views. It's like you, a carpenter does what a carpenter. So your father had all the knowledge and you had nothing. Nowadays, the world is different and the digital world is coming up. 
and young people are going out and getting an education that their parents didn't have, and they're living in different countries and traveling. And so they're exposed to new knowledge and new ideas. And so it isn't a um, parents know and kids learn is more of the kids know some things and the parents know some things and they have to work it out. So the culture of the family gets kind of changed a little bit. And the, the younger generation says, well, we know some things that you don't know, dad. And, uh, you know, we have to do this in a different way. And, and you bring up the style of being collaborative and, 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 and working with people and, and seeing, um, you know, being more give and take. It's a culture change. So mm-hmm. when a family business goes from the first to the second and third generation, they have to change the culture to be more transparent, to be more open, to be more collaborative. Because the family, first of all, the family is, you know, has a number of brothers and sisters and they have to get along and, and cooperate or they'll just be suing each other and fighting all the time. So there is a, um, you know, kind of a, a, a culture change that has to happen. And um, one of the things I found about family businesses today that's different than previous generations is that the younger generation, because of their different perspective, have more power and influence than they've had in the past. And some of their ideas, you know, are, are, are really have to be listened to. When I, I asked the families, when you made major changes in the family business, where did the ideas come from? And to my surprise, the, uh, the 60% of the major changes in these families across the generations, they said they came from the younger generation suggesting them, not the older generation. So the younger generation of family businesses, in a funny way, we have to be entrepreneurs. They have to be redefining and, and changing the business. So we have your program is about entrepreneurs. Well, in the successful family businesses, the second and particularly the third generation, the fourth generation, they have to be entrepreneurial or the business will just decline. So the family has to produce entrepreneurial children. And this is a challenge. Mm. So that brings us to the next segue of that, because by the second, third generation, you know, the kids have grown up with enormous amounts of wealth. So the drive of the person that founded the company and perpetuated the company doesn't really usually exist when it gets to the third generation, maybe second generation. Yes. But in the third generation, they've grown up with so much affluence and wealth that it's like, okay, you know what? Now I could go major in whatever and just like maybe play tennis all day and just live off the trust fund or something. So how does someone building a business and thinking about two, three generations down the road instill those values of, you know what, you need hard work, you need work ethic, you need entrepreneurship ability. Even if you're not going to work in the family business, you need to still imbibe this culture so that that way, no matter what happens or what you choose to do, even if you have unlimited resources available to you, you can still be able to succeed on your own because that seems like it's also a big problem when you look at um, the lives of children of the wealthy today, like Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, and all those type of people. So that's one of the big problems and that that's indeed the problem of family businesses is is how to raise children who share a work ethic who share a sense of responsibility and who want to 
be part of the business to help it grow and, and, and thrive. And what I found, um, and this is one of the very interesting findings that I didn't expect, is that these families, we talk about them having made two important decisions. Mm. The first decision in the first generation is somebody decides to create a successful business, which creates a lot of wealth. That's the entrepreneurial choice. Then, not necessarily the entrepreneur, but somebody in the second generation or the third generation makes a second choice that's equally important. It's an internal choice. And what they say is we need to be very active and create a great family. We need to bring the family together. We need to teach values. You don't proclaim a value and say, here's our values, uh, obey them. You have to teach them and you have to model them and you have to create rules where, you know, people are rewarded for, for being productive, not rewarded for doing nothing. And family members agree that that's, that's important. Sometimes the work that they do, for example, in the very, very wealthy families, like the Rockefeller family is one that's an example and the other families, the next generation may work in the foundation. They may work in philanthropy, but they work. And next generation, they don't work because they need the paycheck. They work because they want to do something that makes a difference. And so they get involved in different kinds of uh, social initiatives. So the family spends time. And the families of these successful family businesses, they meet as a family they have rules and, and clear policies about you don't just get money. You have to be working. Uh, you can't just work in the business unless you have professional training. They have uh, rules about being respectful of each other. Sometimes they have like a media policy or they, they, they ex have expectations about education. Now they may pay. They often pay for the family education. So you can have, you know, you could travel abroad and study anywhere, but you're expected to take up a career. Mm. Now, the career may be, you may be a musician. You may be, um, you know, you may be, a, you know, a, a poet. Um, the family can afford that, but you, you have to do something productive. So these families invested in family and created a kind of a family organization and a family rules and, and, and activities that were parallel to their business activities. And the second, third generation, they don't just wish that their children become productive. They teach them from very early in life that this is what we expect from family members. And they, some will, you know, some of them, you know, it will not take. And there is always rebels and always people. But, but the family, um, you know, kind of has a, you know, clear policies about what they what they expect and what they reward. Mm, okay. Now, let's dive into the more difficult aspects of family business, which is when conflicts arise and then it leads to the implosion of the family business and everybody sells various assets, take, takes the money and go their separate Now, I'm thinking in particular the case with the Pritzker family, who I think the first generation started with a law firm, second generation actually built the conglomerates, the Hyatt's or whatnot. By the third generation, or I think it was the grandkids, they now decided, you know what, everybody splits and goes their separate ways. So what are some of the big conflicts that causes families that were once close and tight to now break up and then the whole family business just 
seems to like implode and it well, doesn't. Well, let me let me let me let me you know kind of use the the, the Pritzker family, um, which I which I uh, you know know about um, as an example. And in their case, I would say that it isn't a failure. They they didn't break up. What happened is they became so huge that they were the lar- one of the largest businesses in the world, and they had thirty or forty family members and three big family branches. And so what they decided, and that yes, they had conflict and everybody has conflict, but they resolved the conflict by saying, you know, we're, we're just so big, we're going to break it up into 11 different smaller shares. And each of these small shares was more than a billion dollars worth of assets. They just felt like it, nobody can manage, you know, everything all, you know, 25 businesses and, you know, things like that. So they divided it up and the family is doing very well. Family members are starting new businesses. There's, you know, one of the family members is the governor of, of Illinois. Um, another one mm-hmm. was the, the secretary of commerce under Obama. They're, they're pursuing different careers and they're building new things. So what's happened to them is they split up in an appropriate way because they were just so successful. And this happened all over the world. Um, families just get big and they're, you know, if a family has two or 300 people, you can't, really have personal relationships so it's better now the other part of it though is is when there is um conflict that people get angrier and angrier and they don't resolve it that's another problem and 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 what happens those situations the conflict is something that when people begin to disagree they they avoid it and they don't face it for example if they have a family member who's in the business running the business and he's not doing a good job or he's favoring his own family or doing things that the family doesn't agree with and they, they don't do anything about it or they, they don't feel that they could do anything about it, then the conflict doesn't go away and it gets people get more and more angry. The families um, in this study, the 100 families, they all had big conflicts. But early on, they, they said, we're going to face the conflicts and we're going to work them out. And we may even make choices that, you know, that people will not like, but we'll make them clearly and we'll make them openly and we'll make them fairly and we'll have time to talk about them so that they all have, they all have conflict, but the families that are successful have conflict resolution mechanisms that say, this is how we do it. If you want to leave the business, for example, most families say, here's the policy. If you don't like what we're doing, hey, you can sell your shares. Can leave the business. You can take the money and, and start your own business. And, you know, you won't be kicked out of the family, but you can be out of the business. And they, they allow what we, that they call free choice. And, and family members that, that don't want to be part of it leave. So, so all of these things happen and, um, the family becomes big. And in a way, it's kind of like the family is a big marketplace and they have to create uh, a better, an organization and they have to deal with, with conflict. So I, I think the families um, have just let the conflict escalate without really trying to openly resolve it. Okay, cool. And as we start to wind down the show, reading through the book and 
from your work as a consultant to several of these high net worth families, helping them grow and succeed. Now for the entrepreneur listening to this show, listening to your interview and they're saying, oh, well, that's great, Dennis. You know, you work with billionaire families and Decker millionaire families, but I'm just trying to struggle to make sure that my business makes like a couple hundred thousand so I can pay my bills and uh, feed my family and send my kids to school. What are some of the key lessons from your work and your research thus far, can somebody just running the little entrepreneurial venture apply to make sure that their business not only thrives and succeeds like some of the strong family businesses you've met and covered, but also positions it in such a way that, okay, you know what, should I need to pivot and change and accommodate my kids as they grow up and come into the, in the business? How would I start structuring all those things early on so that that way I don't run into some of the big challenges that we occur down the road. It's a funny thing to say, but but one of the, the big things that um, I, I think I find from the research is that you can be successful as an entrepreneur if you treat your employees more like family. And the, the, the successful businesses that I see that are entrepreneurial businesses are ones where they respect um, the employees they uh, they're transparent. There's a thing that people have called open book management, where they they share you know, financial things and they they talk about fairness and and they they don't just lay people off. And so treating people like family, having clear values that you adhere to, these are things that that you can do to make the business more like a family. And it means um, it means taking a long term perspective, trying to. I mean, this is where um, I think in entrepreneurship, there's being an entrepreneur where you're in it and you say, I'm going to do this in five years and I want to sell it and make a lot of money and, and leave. That's a kind of a short term uh, entrepreneurism. And, and I, I would like to see entrepreneurs say much more. I am in this for the long term. And I may sell shares and I may broaden the ownership, but I'm really committed to it. I'm not committed to getting out and going on. I'm committed to building a business. And this is what we call a stewardship orientation where you're, you're a steward of the business. You're not, you know, using it for your own, own gain. And, and, and you, I think, I think if you, if, if non-family businesses became more like family businesses, they would actually um, uh, do better. And, and, and in many businesses, entrepreneurships, for example, the, the people that started it become like a family. And, you know, you just say people have worked together for 30 years and they built the business and they know each other's kids and their kids want to work there, some of them, but the kids have to be productive and they have to be capable. And then, you know, a non-family business becomes sort of like a family business. Uh, cool, cool. And my last question before we wrap up and I let you go is that I have noticed in the media that there's a trend for private equity firms to start acquiring historic family businesses to run them, you know, lever them up, try to IPO them or sell them or whatever, and then exit within three to five years like they typically do. Yeah. Now, the biggest case I saw this week was probably with um, Fairview Grocery in um, yeah. New York, which is going through bankruptcy right now. So in your opinion, is the private equity model of building businesses or running businesses good for family-owned businesses? And if it's not, what should be changed to ensure that, okay, if you're going to 
partner with financial sponsor like a private equity firm, how do you structure a business in such a way that you can actually do it the right way and it's profitable for both parties in the long term? Well, I've seen, I mean, I, I got to say, I'm a little bit of a skeptic about, you know, firms that buy up a family business and say, we're going to scale it up and sell it in five years. That That's not my way of doing businesses. But I've seen successful acquisitions of uh, family businesses where the family doesn't leave. They sell, maybe they sell 51%, maybe they sell 49%, but they stay in, um, in, in involved and in leadership. And I've seen private equity firms, you know, like, like, uh, you know, Warren Buffett's uh, Berkshire Hathaway that, that acquires, uh, companies, but they don't, um, just try to scale them up and, uh, and sell them. They try to develop them organically. And, um, and to me, I see many families, uh, for example, um, instead of selling to, um, a, you know, private equity company, they'll sell to a, a family office that acts like a private equity and they'll in a way become partner with two other families and they'll get capital into the business and they'll get capital to cash out some family members who want to retire or who want to leave. And, uh, but the family will still be part of it, but they'll also be harvesting and, and taking out some of the wealth for their, you know, for their own uh, livelihood. Okay, awesome, awesome. So with that said, Dennis, it's been a pleasure talking to you for the past half hour, learning about your work and also about your new book, Borrowed from Our Grandchildren. But before I let you go, tell us a little bit more about where people can get a copy of the book and where people can contact you. Well, the book is called Borrowed from Your Grandchildren, The Evolution of 100-Year Families. It's published by Wiley, and uh, like all books today, you can get it in, in, in bookstores, but also from Amazon and on Kindle. It's electronic copy and a hardback uh, copy and um, either, uh, you know, and, and it's because of, uh, you know, it's, it's available electronically. It, you can get it anywhere in the world uh, instantly. Okay. And I'll be sure to put all those links up when this episode is published and ready to go live. That's great. So thanks a lot, Dennis, for coming to share your story and your words. Great. I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Great. Well, thank you for um, creating a platform and for creating such a good dialogue. Uh, Take care. Take care. My pleasure. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in once again to the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast. If you like what you heard on today's episode of the show, please go to iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review and a comment. It helps other great listeners like yourself find the show and it tells me if I'm doing a good job or not and what type of guests to bring that can impart solid wisdom to help you grow on your entrepreneurial journey. Once again, you can always email me at info at odogwu.com. That's info at odogwu.com to let me know you know if you want a different type of guests or if you even want to be considered as a guest on the show so till next time guys have a great day stay bulletproof and of course i'll catch you on the next episode of the bulletproof entrepreneur podcast <laughs>